0: If you actually look at what an emergency physician writes for, it's pain medication and antibiotics 90% of the time.
1: The physician, they they ruled, had the duty to warn, and the pharmacist's duty is to dispense medications safely.
0: Elderly is always 10 years older than I am.
2: Well, boys and girls, we got a very special issue of Risk Management Monthly coming to you for the July issue. We're doing a Skype issue, uh, issue which is always a bit of a challenge, but we have two guests on the line. Uh, Greg Moore, who's been with us um, uh, multiple times in the past, faculty up at Madigan, um, uh, the, the Madigan program up in Washington, and he has with him and joining us is uh, Aaron Madlock. Aaron is junior faculty. Got, got out of the residency last year for good behavior and is uh, <laughs> c- collaborating with um, uh, Greg on collecting cases of interest to us. And uh, Greg's on the line, uh, Greg Moore, Greg Henry, and uh, Aaron Madlock. And the uh, topic today is um, cases that involve interactions with other people, uh, the hospital, the nurses, the pharmacist, the residents, uh, uh, guys. Is there anything else we got uh, in- interactions we're going to do with? And uh, we
1: got a we got a section on uh, consultants. I don't know if you mentioned. That. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. So, you, know, you know, Rick. Before we get going
0: here, I've just got to thank uh, both of those gentlemen. I was their guest last week up at the uh, up at the Fort Lewis, which is where the Madigan Army Medical Center is located, and they showed me a great time. Uh, so. Uh, Go army,
1: this is this is good. And and Greg, we enjoyed having you, and and I will tell you that the sun has has since gone away. Uh, we brought it out for you while you were here, but we're back to our cloudy baseline. So
0: yeah, uh, well, the great story is told that somebody <laughs> fell off their uh, t- say twenty people fell off their bikes last year in Seattle and drowned to death. There's something. <laughs> <laughs> um.
2: Greg, uh, you've also been to some other uh, places recently. You were overseas. You were um, in uh, Scandinavia. I think we talked about that last time. Yes, I was, sir. And uh, um, Aaron, why don't you give us a little bit of your background since you've not been on with us before.
1: Sure. Um, Well, I am a transplanted Washingtonian. I grew up in Texas, Uh, went to medical school there, and uh, joined the Army to pay for med school and uh, ended up doing emergency medicine residency at Madigan. And I graduated 2011, got assigned to uh, be staff at Madigan, uh, which was great, and then promptly uh, got deployed to Afghanistan. And I was there for nine months, got back in January, and I'm now back uh, reorienting myself to America, uh, which I do prefer uh, to Afghanistan, for the record. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm now assistant residency director and trying to get, uh, get involved in as much as I can.
3: That, that, that's the Army's policy. What they do is they say, Congratulations, you're a specialist now and go to war. They yeah, send yeah. You immediately.
0: Well, I'm glad he said that he preferred the United States, because if you actually said you preferred Afghanistan, we've got a room for you in Cuba. <laughs> and, uh, and, but, but we can go ahead and uh, get going with this thing. Uh, Rick and I are uh, honored to be um, to with you. Uh, we uh, we uh, applaud your service. And you can refer to us as maggot one and maggot two for the rest of this uh,
2: conversation. No, we're going to huh? let um, uh, Greg Moore who's uh, uh, MDJD, uh, run with the ball in these cases, and uh, we're just going to sit back and relax as they, uh, they take us through, the, through, through them, and I'm sure we'll have a comment or two. But, uh, Greg, why don't you um, just run, uh, run with the
1: ball here? Before we get started, the Army wants me to tell you that uh, these are the opinions of Greg and me and not that of the Department of Defense, the Army, or the government. Oh, so now, that, right. now that that's out of the way. <laughs> and, <how laughs> and, and by the way... Notes? You know that the government is
0: listening. That's, that's all been straightened out, right? Yes, they're right. listening
3: to this. Yep. Okay. We were thinking about doing this in Hong Kong, but uh we, we decided to just come out. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: Yeah. And by the way, there is an extradition treaty with Hong Kong, so I wouldn't do that. Yeah.
3: yeah. Uh, I, I was going to start with a quick shout out. I, I'm proud. Uh, You know, it's in your backyard, Greg, but my daughter just graduated from Wayne State Medical School, and uh, she signed up for the Army like Aaron, and uh, is going into emergency medicine. Um, There's a sister program down in Texas called Fort Hood, and um, they selected her for their program, and uh, so I wanted to give them a shout out. It's uh, Dr. Linklater, Dr. Bass, Dr. Miller, and Dr. Moffitt, and I just appreciate them showing confidence and selecting her, and uh, I'm sure they're going to make her just like us, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, I wanted to start off with three quick cases. Uh, When I speak at conferences or talk to people, uh, ED docs are naturally uh, paranoid and they're used to being responsible and and they wonder, hey, am I responsible for all of this? Uh, The first case is one where a, a patient comes into the emergency department and a nurse goes into the room to assess them and feels like they are suicidal and asks the doc to come in and assess and the ED doc goes into the room but then is called for a consultant call. And the patient escapes, runs from the room, and either jumps or falls off a parking structure and dies. So then the physician is sued for not assessing quick enough and for letting the patient escape. And and this case uh, was basically ruled for the physician, and it was uh, the defense, and, and the court felt he has an obligation to answer calls, and uh, if he hasn't had a chance to assess someone, he can't know that they're suicidal and uh, let him off. The next case is a 58-year-old guy with abdominal pain. He's in the department, and he's given two milligrams of Dilaudid, and then he's sent over to X-ray to get a, uh, some films. Um, he's not monitored, he has a respiratory arrest over there and after a prolonged uh, ICU stay uh, eventually dies so the physician gets sued for you know not having him monitored over there Uh, he said that nursing should have done it the nurse said it wasn't ordered so I didn't do it and uh, there was a settlement of 450,000 but the hospital paid this settlement now I'll come back to that in a minute Um, The next case is a waiting room case where a diabetic uh, male with nausea, diaphoresis, chest pain, and shortness of breath um, also has a positive cardiac family history. He gets triaged to the waiting room. He's out there for an hour, and then he has a cardiac arrest and dies. Um, So everyone's sued. Uh, but basically what ends up happening is the hospital paid $1.25 million and the physician on duty in the ED uh, was let off. So I, I just wanted to start off with these cases and, and there's certain things that the hospital's going to answer for and just because you're the doc on duty, you are not going to get in trouble and um... so when these patients escape and run away when they go away somewhere and they're not monitored properly uh... when something happens out in the waiting room and you haven't even had a chance to, to talk to them I, I hope this is encouraging but in general the hospital is the one that's going to be responsible either via the nurses or because they own that real estate
0: a couple of comments greg we, we don't want to pass on the idea here that uh, this is always going to be the case. Because I certainly have cases where the emergency physician has stayed involved. For example, the suicide case. I have one where the emergency physician was sta- stayed involved because he, the, the claim was knew or should have known and made no opportunity to notify the desk, tell the nurses when he left the room. So it's, it's not perfect. On the on the uh, drug overdose case, um, I understand where two milligrams of delauded is a usual and customary dose. When I read the case you sent me, I, I didn't know which of you two guys did this, but I was going to I was going to slap both of you because it said. 58-year-old man, and then it said, we have to be careful of the lauded in the elderly. Uh, <laughs> qu- qu- quite quite frankly, Rick and I are offended by that, number one. Uh, I did notice two, it. Yeah, number two, I've lusted after women older than that. So I want you to be very, very careful saying that 58-year-olds are elderly. elderly is Elderly is always 10 years older than I am. So uh, be careful. The third one is the waiting room case. And I think those are highly variable. Uh, it's you have to look and see what the triage people, what level at which they triage them. Uh, and here, here's the case. I was just in a case which had to, to do with did the doctor uh, know? What was going on in that waiting room? Had somebody come to him? Had someone showed him an e, a, a, a preliminary EKG? I think they're complex cases. I mean, I'm I'm glad we won in those three cases, but I'll tell you what: depending on the the specifics, you could have lost those three.
3: All great points. All great points. The the waiting room thing is uh yeah. If you're aware of something, uh, then you can't say that I'm not. responsible. You know, responsible for it. That, I think a lot of um, systems now, that's why we get the EKG in 10 minutes, show it to the doc, then tag, you're it. Um, yeah. What I liked about this case is, is thinking that when there's 100 people out in that waiting room and you don't even know what they're here for, if something bad happens, it's very, very likely that the hospital's gonna be responsible for that. With the dilated case, this was one of a series of cases I shared. Uh, with residents and the other ones were people in their 70s and 80s and I had a whole bunch of these dilated cases um, where, you know, small doses people stopped breathing so one of the points was uh, just to be careful with this drug Um, but this was one specifically where the nurse said hey, I didn't monitor them because you didn't tell me to and the doc said why didn't you monitor them and they ended up having the hospital via the nurse be the one that took the hit so.
1: All right. Well, I've got a, I've got a couple cases about, uh, about pharmacists. Um, and I've got two cases here that, that sort of delineate how the courts see the roles of physicians and pharmacists uh, when you're dealing with medication side effects. Um, and so in general, the way the courts, uh, at least in how these have played out in these two cases, the courts see the duty of the physician to warn of side effects, and the pharmacist's duty is to safely dispense the medication. And so I've got two cases uh, that, that sort of illustrate those points. Um, in both of these, uh, they're from 2000, Walmart is the defendant in both of these cases. Uh, the first one is a, a mom brings a 12-year-old boy to her doctor uh, for ADHD, and uh, he gets prescribed uh, disipramine, which is a TCA. Uh, this was the early 90s. Um, and the child goes uh, with his mom to the, to the pharmacist, and they fill the prescription. He starts taking it, and over the next couple of years, develops a strange constellation of symptoms that no one can quite figure out. Um, and he gets sicker and sicker and eventually dies. Um, at autopsy, the pathologist uh, determines that he has what's something called hyper-eosinophilic syndrome, uh, which the pathologist testified was a result of the, uh, the side effect of this GA. Uh, so the mom brings suit against uh, several physicians, uh, including the original one, as well as the pharmacist. Uh, and you know the the doctor testifies, well, you know, I, I showed this, uh, I showed her this, you know, this page in the uh, in the physician's desk reference. You know, uh, look out for a rapid heart rate. You know, watch for dry mouth, that kind of thing, common side effects. Uh, and the pharmacist, um, you know, says that she basically did the same thing. Uh, well, the uh, the ED, or the, the primary physician uh, was sound liable in this case, and the, the appellate court ultimately determined that uh, the pharmacist did not have a duty to warn about side effects that, that was the job of the physician um, and so they were the Walmart stores was, was basically dropped sound uh, not liable for this case so curious what, uh, what Greg and, and Rick think about that. Well, one thing I would uh, say is. Now,
0: when you go to the pharmacies, all of the big producers, all the big providers have a checkbox there where you have to sign check off and say, I decline instructions about the drugs, because if you request instruction at that moment in time, their pharmacist is supposed to tell you about all these side effects. You know, when I go in, I, I check the box saying I decline to uh to have the education but i think that these kmart cases push these larger providers in that direction that they at least have at least thought about offering this kind of support
1: mm-hmm. um well, and, i think you know, this is oh sorry go ahead rick uh
2: i think that this is uh, a tough one because some drugs have you know uh, very major common side effects and other drugs have um uh, side effects that are going to occur very, very, very unusually and rarely. And and this is obviously a very rare uh, side effect of uh, tricyclics that probably nobody even knows about. So I guess one of the issues is what is the threshold uh, of side effects that you need to uh, counsel patients about? I got to admit, you know, when we, you know, when I would prescribe something, I didn't tell people about well, watch out for the effects of this antibiotic. It may cause diarrhea, it may cause uh, you know you have uh, C. difficile and all that, you know we don't we don't do that. Let's be honest. Um, and And when you go to a pharmacist, I mean, they're busy, uh, they're not necessarily going to go into all of these um, uh, uh, problems, although it, it is interesting that when uh, you prescribe a uh, fluoroquinolone, that uh, they are mandated to give you a fact sheet regarding the um, uh, tendon-related complications that was developed by the FDA. Um, Most doctors don't know that, um, but it is uh, required that this sheet be given with these prescriptions. Uh, And one of the issues there is, If you get into trouble with it, was there some alternative drug that could have been given? And virtually every time there is an alternative drug to the fluoroquinolones for outpatient treatment of bronchitis or whatever inappropriate indication you're giving it for, Um, there's uh, over a 1,000 cases of tendon-related problems associated with the fluoroquinolones. And um, although the patients do get this sheet from the pharmacist, I, I'm concerned that um, there's going to be an issue where people get hurt, particularly the elderly, and somebody's going to say, well, doctor, could you have used a different drug? And the answer always is yes.
0: Well, Rick, let's, let's, let's be fair. Um, there are so many side effects to so many medications. The best thing the doctor can do to protect him or herself is to only prescribe a limited number of medications. I think I have control over about 25 drugs. If you actually look at what an emergency physician writes for, it's pain medication and antibiotics 90% of the time. So you have to kind of know those. And let me tell you another area where I'm seeing cases. That has to do with what interferes with birth control pills and what interferes with anticoagulants those two areas have been a bigger problem at least for me in in my med legal practice than anything else birth control pills what are they what you know how are they affected by the other medications and anticoagulants I don't know what the uh, what the um, experience is around the table here but uh, those two are important
3: yeah I, I, I just uh, you know to me this case is Scary and and horrifying. I mean, uh, uh, you know, the court here it's it's like clearly a very very rare thing, but the court's clearly pointing at the physician and saying you have the relationship with the patient. The pharmacist might help you with this, but you are the one that has to tell all of the side effects, and <clears throat> even if it's a rare one. Uh, you may be responsible. And like in the emergency department, you know, how can we go through everything and say, you know, it may, it may make your little toe tingle too. Um, it, it's really kind of daunting and scary. and uh, But it's important to know that you have that level of, of responsibility. But I guess I would ask Aaron, is there any suggestions as how you could manage this kind of thing in the emergency department?
1: Well I, I agree, I think it's, it's unreasonable and impossible to warn of every side effect, but warning about the big ones, the common ones, um, certainly any major drug interactions like anticoagulation and you know things like that, um, are, is important, and that's probably reasonable for an emergency physician to do. The other thing that, that I would suggest that you can do is at discharge, you know if you're prescribing a medication, instruct the patient to read the package insert uh, because that's something that the FDA has signed off on, basically, and, you know, that's going to list any, any side effects that have come up in any <laughs> level of testing, but uh, I, I don't know how much that would actually cover you, but it, it seems like a reasonable thing to say to me. Uh, Aaron, but I do, yes.
0: Aaron, you're a smart guy. Captain, <laughs> I salute you, <laughs> but if you think somebody's going to read the package, in third, first of all, it's written in a microtype, You know they could. You know I'm surprised they don't put it on the head of a pin. It's written so so small um, that uh, you know I don't even have a magnifying glass good enough to be able to read that. Number one, (laughs) number two is you'd scare the the living poo poo out of them just letting him start to read those things. I you know I think the standard warning is if anything's not right, come back and call your doc because it's almost impossible for you and I to warn them of everything and people who aren't trained in medicine. Uh, What are they going to do with something that says um, may cause dysdiodocokinesis? I I mean, I I, 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 I honestly believe that uh, if you're expecting them to read that, it's like, you know, again, it's like the kid who you send home with Moby Dick expecting him to read it. It ain't going to happen.
3: But, although but um I, I one, I, of the, one of the of one of the take home points though is that uh this this case just to raise awareness of of who is responsible a lot, I think a lot of people practice thinking, "Oh hey, that's not my job, that's the pharmacist's job they're gonna do that and um that's not necessarily true
2: no nope. <laughs> do you want to go back a, a second and um get to this birth control business um, We looked at that in the abstracts and um it is generally. The literature says that there's no relationship between birth control pills and antibiotics decreasing their effectiveness, except for rifampin, which is not a drug that is particularly prescribed in the emergency department. Um, there, I've often asked in our courses, uh, how many of you advise your patients to use barrier contraceptives when you put them on broad-spectrum antibiotics, and there's a substantial subset, although a minority of physicians who uh, acknowledge doing that. But when you actually look at the literature on it, it's not something that um, really is upheld. And it's a pain in the butt for these people to switch over to um, barrier contraceptives uh, when they get put on their back room for their urinary tract infection or something like that. The other thing I wanted to mention was this waiting room business. Um, I know that we're going back a bit, but I was outside telling my gardener, who has the the blower, to knock it off a little bit. <laughs> I have a I have a blow and blow and go gardener here, and that's, that's, what they, that's all they do, kind of thing. But in any case, uh, the, the the there was a waiting room case uh, at uh, University Hospital in Las Vegas where a woman uh, delivered a child in the waiting room, and there was a lawsuit over that, and. Um, the decision was is that the waiting room is the uh, responsibility of the hospital and their triage nurses and those people out there. The uh, doctor involved in the case did not know that this person was there. And um, so they drew the line and said, the waiting room is, you can't be expected to know everything about everything when you're the uh, doctor on duty. And so that case went, uh, was settled where the hospital uh, paid the bucks. All right, I'm done. Whatever. You, no, I,
3: I think that's I think that's great. That's the exact point, is that I think a lot of docs feel like, hey, I'm the captain of this ship, and and anything that goes wrong, I might get in trouble for. But, you know, uh, the courts are going to be reasonable. If somebody handed you something and said, look at this, and you ignore it, and something bad happens, that that's different. But if if you're totally oblivious to something out there, um, it, it's really really unlikely you're going to get tagged for it.
2: Actually,
0: just, there was another just to case. Just to finish the story, she named the kid Exit Only. So I (laughs) thought that
2: was (laughs) Let me give you one more. Um, There was uh, one of the universities around here got into trouble when uh, somebody uh, who was in their waiting room for a protracted period of time ultimately left and went across the street and somehow got hit by a bus. And uh, they were under the influence of something or other. And uh, that resulted in a suit as well. But what happened there was... Uh, It became an EMTALA case because um, it was perceived that this person did not get a timely evaluation uh, uh, and medical screening examination. And as a result, this university wound up having to hire a private ER group to staff their waiting room to make sure that nothing bad happened out there because uh, the EMTALA people got a little upset about uh, a substantial delay in the assessment of this patient. So do you guys have anything to say about uh, these dribbling into uh, mtala cases?
3: Yeah, no, you're totally right. Uh, um, I know of another case where a guy had chest pain and sat at the waiting room and said, screw it, and left to went to another hospital. Uh, but he arrested before he got there. And they, they also sued under EMTALA saying, you know, you should be screening people sooner than you did me, and I left because you failed on Mtala and they were successful in that suit.
1: There you go. All right, so I've got another case uh, where the pharmacist was actually held liable for an adverse medication uh, outcome. So a, a patient goes to his nephrologist uh, for um, worsening creatinine, basically. Uh, the nephrologist puts him on uh, prednisone, writes a script for 80 milligrams QID, uh, which is an exceptionally large dose. Uh, the patient takes that to the pharmacist who looks at it and says, well, wow, 320 milligrams is probably a lot. Uh, so it calls the answering service of this nephrologist. Uh, the person who answers the phone says she checks with the doctor and confirms that that's the right dose. pharmacist fills it. Uh, the patient takes 320 milligrams of prednisone for 23 days. Um, until it was finally recognized and stopped. Subsequently, developed nocardia pneumonia and cerebral aspergillosis, uh, required several surgeries, long hospital stays, ended up on dialysis. Uh, and then suit was brought against the physician and the pharmacist. Um, the physician settled in this case, but the pharmacist uh, was ultimately held liable for uh, for $2.5 million. Um, and the court in their ruling uh, basically said that um, you know even if you even if you check with the physician and they verify that this dose is, is the correct one that they wrote if you think as a pharmacist it's unsafe you have a duty not to dispense that medication so you know in these two cases we we sort of see how the courts have handled these these issues of who has what duty uh, when it comes to the physician and the pharmacist um and you know, the physician they they ruled had the duty to warn and the pharmacist's duty is to dispense medications safely yeah
0: by the way the nurse has that exact same responsibility A a nurse is supposedly the check on the system. You and I and all four of us have at some point in time written an inappropriate dose of a medication, and a nurse has said right to our face, you didn't mean that, did you, doctor? You know, 100 milligrams of morphine because you were talking about Demerol at that moment in time. Um, I think that we have to respect other health professionals to challenge us, And if, if a nurse comes back to me and says, let me clarify this, this is what you want. Is that right? Uh, what we should do is, is thank them for, uh, for carrying out their duties. That is the right thing for them to do.
1: I agree. Um, and when the pharmacist calls you in the ED and asks about your dose, I, I tend to thank them as well because they've just caught an error of mine. So right. um, Right. Exactly. Um, all right, so those are, those are the pharmacist cases. and uh, One
3: thing I think is like, you know, if I, if I was a, re, uh, a listener out there, I might say, come on, this is a nephrology case and, and this is a primary care case. I'm an emergency physician. But, but I think these cases are really clear in defining your job versus the pharmacist job, and, and they really apply
2: to us. Well, guys, can I uh, step back just a little bit because uh, one of the uh, mentions was about warfarin, and we are the antibiotic prescribers of the world. And um, one of the things that's become apparent is that any antibiotic will almost assuredly increase a patient's INR who's on warfarin because what it uh, does to the bowel flora and how the bowel flora are involved in um, the actions of these, uh, uh, these drugs. And so if you decrease the bowel flora, um, you will basically increase your INR. And um it's it's a predictable thing. it's not a, it's not a side effect. It is uh, very physiologic and I think w- with so many people on warfarin that we do need to be aware in the emergency department that this is going to cause a bump in their INR. Now it may not result in any problem. They may go to five the next day and back down to one and a half the, the day after that. But it is uh, something that people should be aware of, particularly if you're going to prescribe, um, antibiotics for a protracted period, and one of the cases where that happens is people often believe that um, sinusitis needs a protracted antibiotics, and we often give you know weeks of that uh, antibiotics for that. Wh- what it really means is that antibiotics don't treat sinusitis, but we 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 sometimes believe that that's one of the exceptions, and we give a lot, and those people will definitely have an increase in their INR, and I think that. Um, uh, advising them that you might want to check in with your uh your doctor about uh your your INR. They may make one, one adjustment while we're on this. But to say nothing is when you're giving an antibiotic to a, a warfarin patient, I think is a little risky agree. Good point. That,
3: well, that's we're one lucky. of my early questions. Soon as soon as I have an infectious disease, I, my next question is are you on COVID? And,
0: <laughs> right. Uh, exactly. And we're also lucky that maybe we won't have to be giving, worrying about this because they're being all moved to Prodaxa. Now,
1: <laughs>
0: what that means is the, it's not, the, uh, the effect may not be from the antibiotic, it just is if they get in trouble on Prodaxa, we don't know what to do about it yet. And, exactly. uh, and that's, that's the sad part of, of the, uh, the current uh, uh, crisis.
1: Exactly.
3: I mean, when patients say, "Oh no, I'm not on that. I'm on Pradax, I say, "Well, sit real still, please. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, don't don't fall and bump your head, please." <laughs> All right. Um, so, I've got uh, some consultant cases that I'd like to go through. Um, so, these um, cases I think highlight uh, how the courts have determined what what constitutes a relationship between someone, a consulting specialist that maybe you talk to on the phone, or you. Curbside in the emergency department. At what point has that person established a relationship with the patient you're seeing in the ED? And this is something we, we run into a lot. And I think there's probably a lot of misconception about this. Um, and I know personally, I'm I'm reassured if I talk to someone on the phone and they say, "Well, yeah, do this," and I do it, and I you know I document, I talk to so and so. But um, it's not always it's not always that clear uh, in the courts, um, you know what what that liability is. But I think that these cases kind of point out what what's been uh, what's been done and shown uh, in in these decisions. So the first one is a non-ED case but it is uh, a uh, sort of a a hallmark case in terms of defining that. Uh, This is Walters v. Wrinkler Um, and this is a guy that goes to his his PCP uh, to have a mass in his thigh looked at. Uh, He sends him to a surgeon who excises it. That specimen goes to a pathologist who looks at it and says hey there's no malignancy here, Uh, good to go. Uh, The patient goes back to his primary care doctor who basically clears him. He gets sicker over the next two years and is ultimately diagnosed with a large cell lymphoma and dies. Um, and then the suit was brought against uh, n- numerous parties, including the pathologist, who argued that, you know, I didn't see or treat this guy, uh, and I didn't have a relationship with him. Um, and the court in this case ruled that, no, you did. Uh, you looked at a specimen. You took specific. Uh, you took sp- specific Piece of him looked at it, examined it for the specific purpose of diagnosing and treating him. And so, by examining that specimen, uh, you you establish a a physician-patient relationship, and he was held liable in this case.
3: So, so you can have a relationship even though you have never seen that person, and then you are going to be liable as a result. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yep. Well, what Uh, we're saying, you know, this is very. I think this has been laid out pretty clearly. A pathologist. Uh, receives a specific piece of of tissue from a specific patient. He has made an implied contract with that patient that he's going to read it correctly. That's the uh, that's that's his obligation. Just like a a radiologist rarely sees the patient, but they look at their film. A cardiologist may look at you know at the echo uh but it's a specific person it's not general information and i think that's the key is you know if you ask a an infectious disease guys hey what do we usually give for x or y that's general information if you get down to a specific patient that that is an obligation
2: yeah the other thing here is is that the pathologist sent a bill uh, this this even makes it more clear that this is a relationship that has been established even though the person has not physically seen the pathologist, uh, he doesn't need to to establish this relationship, I don't think. And um, so I think that this is pretty clear. And I think, uh, Greg Moore, the idea that you stressed here that, that uh, it needs to be specific to a person um, is one of the keys here. And Greg uh, Henry pointed out that, you know, a general question, no sweat. A specific question in which the consultant has looked at the patient's record knows the case, and God forbid bills. I don't think that I don't think there's any question in the, in something like that.
1: Exactly. All right. So here's here's another case um, that uh, uh, that that illustrates this point as well. So this is Diggs versus Arizona Cardiologists, uh, the year 2000. Uh, so there's a, a woman comes into the emergency department with what's described as uh, severe chest pain. Uh, the ED doc treating her orders an EKG, uh, does an H&P, and uh, actually orders an echo as well. There happens to be a cardiologist walking through the emergency department. Uh, this guy's not on call, but he is uh, a member of the group that staffs uh, the their cardiologist for the hospital. And he pulls him aside and says, hey, can I tell you about this case? Um, I've got a lady with chest pain. Here's her EKG, which, oh, by the way, the machine is interpreting as an MI. But I think it's sounds more like pericarditis. Uh, so the cardiologist looks at the EKG, reviews the case, uh, doesn't see the patient, but does um, you know, review her test results, and says, yeah, it's, it sounds like pericarditis. she give her some endomethacin. I'll see her in 10 days. She can see her doctor tomorrow. Uh, so she goes home. She gets discharged uh, on the advice of this cardiologist and dies of a, a massive MI three hours later. So suit is brought against both the emergency physician and the cardiologist. Uh, and the cardiologist at the trial argues that you know, hey, this was an informal consult. I wasn't on call, um, and you know, I, I didn't have a relationship with this patient, basically, you know, and thus I don't owe her any duty. Uh, well, the court ruled against the cardiologist, and, and, and actually, uh, the ED physician was not held liable in this case. Um, and they, in their ruling, said, you know, you, by virtue of your specialty and your expertise, uh, you had a duty to this patient. You know, you took specific information, Zooter test results. And this emergency physician was relying on your expertise. He deferred to your judgment. And you were in a unique position to prevent her harm. You had admitting privileges at this hospital. You're an expert in cardiology. And by not admitting her, by not doing further testing, you know your actions uh, were a breach of that duty. And so uh, that was how things played out in that case. And I'm curious what, uh, what you guys think about that one. When-
2: what do I think? I think that uh, this, is, this is tough because um- – We don't want to discourage physicians from helping us out, and um, I think people get a little nervous about rendering uh, advice, and uh, um, I think one of the things I read in the stuff that you sent us, guys, is that the courts basically don't want to have a chilling effect on um, physicians cooperating with each other and and basically uh, not... um, not being willing to help out because they think that any advice they give, no, no matter how general, will come back and bite them. So um, this is a kind of a, a, a gray zone, I kind of think, and I understand where, when the, what the idea here is. The idea is if it's generic advice, it's okay. If it's more specific advice relating to a specific patient in which additional data has been generated to make it clear that it's a specific patient, then they are on the hook. Um, and one of the things that was also noted is, well, how do you deal with these in terms of documentation in the chart? Uh, one of the things I saw suggests that um, how you document this can either help the doctor who is a consultant or hurt the doctor who is a consultant uh, in terms of how you um, put this uh, document this in the chart. So I would ask um, Greg Moore, I think that you were the one who kind of had something to say about. The next step here of what do we put in the chart when we talk to these doctors?
3: Oh, uh, well, yeah. I, um, if what it depends on what the goal is. If, if you know what would what would the goal be? To, what are you wanting or looking for in the, in the situation? Um, if you're wanting that person to definitively be involved with you, then you have to show that they have committed to taking care of the patient and a specific patient that's what you're going to have to do on the chart if you want them to be involved if otherwise if you don't care if they're involved then you would just write something generic like I discussed this with cardiology and so forth and so on Um, I know I'll tell you historically in this case the cardiologists went crazy Uh, they had editorials in all their journals and they said can you believe this this guy was just trying to help out a little bit, and then he ends up carrying the whole thing on his own. Um, but like Greg Henry already said, the, the 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 differential thing here, the critical thing was specific. The word specific was specific info on a specific person and specific advice, and that's gonna that's gonna get the consultant.
0: I'm gonna take the I'm gonna take the emergency medicine aggressive standpoint here and say this. I went through 10 years of trouble with people on the phone saying, yeah, but you don't have to put my name down, do you? Well, A, number one, if I call them about their patient, I'm certainly going to put their name down, uh, particularly when they g- agreed to see the patient the next morning, that sort of thing. Do you think I'm going to remember that conversation in five years when this gets tried? Secondly, if they're on call in a specific specialty, and I've given them specifics about a patient that they are going to have to see. I think the emergency department ha- physician has a right to rely upon the higher standard of care. And, you know, I, what I don't want is when a storm blows and this thing turns to crap that uh, people are all going to hide and say, well, I don't think that took place and this, that, and other thing. You know what? Uh, man up here. Those guys make uh, reasonable livings uh, taking care of the hospital. And by God, if, if they think, well, they could have called me in, good. We'll start having you come in now, you know, to, to take a look at the patient. I, I think that we, we have to be honest. Here's what I don't like is putting down uh, ortho consulted. Well, you know what? Ortho doesn't have a name at the hospital. Dr. Bones has a name. And I, I really don't like us playing a game that lets people kind of off the hook. Again, general question, different issue. Mr. Smith is a specific patient, and I think, I think I'm asking for specific advice on a case.
2: Although the gray zone here is uh, doctors that are walking through the department who are not on call, who are not the patient's doctors, you're asking them for, hey, would you mind taking a look at this EKG kind of thing? I think that's what the area we're talking about where there is no clear obligation on the part of the physician to do anything and that they, we don't well, want to discourage doctors because everybody thinks they're going to get their butt sued if they say anything with regards to uh, a patient's care, even if it's a general um, a bit of advice. Uh, there, are two st- there are at
0: least 24 states which have defended in-house Good Samaritan. That means, let's say, you're a doc on the floor and somebody else's patient arrests and you help out. That sort of thing is defended. Uh, and it, but I think the point that was brought up earlier, if you're doing something which generates a bill for the patient, uh, good luck. I mean, that's not good, Samaritan. What that is is <laughs> you, you unfortunately build somebody who went bad, and, and you do have an obligation there.
3: I think, and then and the other thing I would say is that you know, um as an e d physician i I try to play fair too. you know if, if I'm gonna try to bring someone in, i i I'm professional and I'm honest, and I'm saying, Fred, um I'm calling you really sort of formally on this because i because I want you to be on the chart and involved and and make it clear to them, and that that kind of forces them to tune in and listen a little better. if you kind of present it like, oh, golly geez, what do you think? um that's not being fair to them sometimes i think if if you're going to write it down later
0: in 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 uh the interest of full disclosure it should be pointed out here that uh greg m and aaron practice in a hospital where you have to go through the federal tort claims act to sue anybody <laughs> it's it's <laughs> it's a lot different situation than being in uh, Keokuk, iowa
1: that is true um, and this has been brought up a couple times uh, the issue about the courts not wanting to shut down discourse between professionals um, and that's you know that 's in the ruling of one of these cases i 'm about to talk about um, and th- they basically said that you know we, we don't want to we don 't want to punish people for giving advice you know there's there's different specialists out there who who can offer advice and 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 to other treating physicians, and that's to the benefit of the medical profession in society. And so they're hesitant to punish people for giving their thoughts on a case. Um, and so I've, I've got a, a couple other cases here uh, that that sort of go the opposite way, um, where some general advice was given by a specialist, and, uh, and at suit, um, you know, the, these consulting physicians argued that, they, that this was general advice and uh and they weren't held liable. So the first one is a uh a guy comes into a emergency department w- having recently injected uh some paint thinner into his thumb. A kind of a high pressure injection injury uh which we all know uh can be um, much worse than it appears on the outside. Uh the ED physician is worried about this uh issue. And so he, this is in a big a big uh, city, and there happens to be a hand center nearby. Um, and he recommends that this uh, patient go to the hand center and get seen, which he declines to do. Uh, and so he, he decides he's going to put him on some pain meds and antibiotics. And before he discharges the guy, he calls a plastic surgeon who's not on call, uh, but he's a guy that he knows. Uh, he's a nice guy. He knows he's answered the phone, and he'd probably be helpful. So he gives this guy a ring. And he asks him what he would do in a situation. And he says, you know, uh, yeah, let's, you can give him some antibiotics and pain meds, and yeah, I'll, I'll be willing to see him uh, on Monday. Uh, and so he discharges the patient, and he ends up uh, with a uh, distal thumb amputation after things get worse. Um, and the plastic surgeon is brought into this suit, and he argues, you know, this, I wasn't on call. You know, I, I, I don't have a duty to this patient. I was just trying to help out uh, a colleague. And that's, that's how the courts uh, ruled in this case. You know, they said, this is general advice. This, this particular plastic surgeon doesn't have a duty to every patient at the hospital um, just because he answers the phone. Um, and so here's a case where, where general advice was, was not determined to be uh, something that established a, a patient relationship. And thus, uh, in this case, you know, no duty was, was found to be owed to this, to this patient.
0: Question. Did the emergency physician uh, lose money on this case? Uh, I believe so. I believe yeah, so. Because, you know, as I look over, at least in my career, we had a lot of industrial-type injuries where I was uh, located. Uh, does anything good ever come out of a high-pressure wound in a hand? I've just I've just never seen that as a good thing. And I, before I'd let him sign out against medical advice, not Follow up with this hand service. I would have put the fear of God in him that we're going to have to cut it off somewhere near the elbow, (laughs) because I, you know, I, you know, when I saw the first one of these as a medical student, I couldn't honestly believe that they started at the index finger. They dissected through the palm of the hand and around to the fifth (laughs) digit. This thing was huge, and when you first looked at the guy. You wouldn't have picked that up from just looking at the finger. And uh, one, of the, one of the hand surgeons moved the finger a little bit and said, watch. It had caused pain up the other side of the hand. He says, we're going to end up there when we're done. And he was absolutely right.
3: Well, Greg, one thing I do is when I have these cases, I've had them a few times with fight bites as well. And they leave A&A and I make them sign the AMA with their opposite hand. I said they need to start getting used to using that hand because the other <laughs> one might be gone pretty soon.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: I, I like that. And I always love it when, uh, and I'm sure in the military you see a lot of this, where they come in with some wounds over the knuckles. And you say, what happened? I fell, sir. Uh No, no, no great ape falls (laughs) on their knuckles. If you watch a gorilla fall, he puts his hand out. It never (laughs) happens that you fall on your knuckles.
1: (laughs) Agree. All right, so here's here's the uh, the last of the consultant cases, and this is this is a similar uh, to the previous one. Uh, This is a guy that comes in to the ED with uh, with pretty bad tonsillitis. He's got pus in the back of his throat, touching tonsils, Um, and the ED doc gives him a penicillin shot and what's described in the court documents as a breathing treatment. Um, And he calls. This is of course three in the morning, and so he calls the ENT uh, who answers the phone and uh, says, you know, how does your group treat tonsillitis? And the ENT doctor. Talks to him a little bit about the case. Uh, he's told specifically by the ED doc that that you know there there's a little bit of noisy breathing, but the guy's not in any distress. He's up walking around. Um, and the ENT says, "Well, we usually give some dexamethasone and rocephin. Uh, probably wouldn't hurt to give uh, that additional antibiotic. Why don't you uh, watch him for a little bit and call me back and let me know how he does?" Um, well, three hours later, he gets a call back um, after this. Uh, this patient is decompensated, and following a failed attempt at orotracheal intubation is emergently uh, criked. Um, and the ED doc calls the ENT back and says, hey, can you come in and, and help me take care of this patient? Um, unfortunately, the, the guy uh, went to the ICU and was declared brain dead uh, several hours later. So suit was brought on behalf of the uh, deceased, and the ENT doctor was, was named in the suit. And he said, you know, I, I didn't have a relationship with this patient until, until I got called in to, uh, to help uh, after the cricothyrotomy, And the courts agreed. You know, they said, uh, you know, this is, this is you uh, giving general advice. You know, although you, you know, you, you listen to the story, you know, I, you, you did not make any affirmative act uh, to agree to take care of this patient until until after you were asked to come in. And this is the case where uh the the court ruling, uh, their opinion where they say specifically, you know, we don't want to shut down this discourse between positions, you know, we don't want people to be so scared of giving advice for fear of lawsuit that they will stop talking to one another.
0: I would agree with that decision that it that he really didn't have a uh relationship. He was asked for some general information. I think he went ahead. Now, when he came in and is actually managing the case after the cricothyrotomy, then he obviously has another standard of care that he, that he has to answer to, but uh, that seemed like a reasonable court decision
1: at the time. Right, and, and that was never argued at, at, at trial, was whether he had a relationship after he came in. It was just the, the intervening hours between the initial call and, and then what was his responsibility at that point.
2: Yeah. Although, you know, I sense that this is a bit of a slippery slope between the idea of giving generic advice and giving advice specific for a patient. Uh, if this ENT doctor was on call and a case was discussed, uh, don't you think that there was uh, some discussion about, what? well, uh, the temperature was this, the pulse was that, um, um, the breathing, uh, well, there is some, some noises being made Um, I think that, you know, the idea that this is just a generic response to what do you do for sore throats is a little different because they're discussing one particular case. And I think the issue then would be, well, how specific did the emergency physician get in this case? And um, and, and, um, because they want to drag this doctor in for sure. And I think that that is one of the issues is was this generic advice that would apply to everybody with a nasty sore throat or was there some other information unique to this patient that should have been um, taken into consideration and makes this not generic advice anymore? I mean, obviously, a breathing treatment for a sore throat is a little strange.
1: Right. And, uh, you know, there was there's some there's some reason he called him, you know, you don't we don't call ENTs on every, on every case. And, and exactly. I agree, there's, there's no such thing as truly general advice. I mean, I don't call the urologist to you know, read them uh, an oral board case and ask them what they think. I mean, I'm talking about a patient, and so, you know, I think it has a lot to do with what what your request is. You know, be very specific with what you're asking. Um, and, you know, I think that the more that you engage them and are clear about your intent for this call, uh, I think that's going to be to your benefit in terms of either having them officially on board, at least in terms of liability, uh, and, or not. Although
2: I would be a little... Uh, reluctant to use the phrase that you used pri- uh, previously in, say- in saying, Would you, uh, uh, you know, I think you were, used the word formally accept this case, or there was some phraseology that used. I, w- I would think that if you said that to a doctor on the phone, they would hang up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was,
3: that, I think that was me. Uh, I think that was me. I'm going to take the thing on that. Uh, I, um, so the term that the courts will use is called an affirmative act. And, uh, and that's basically where the consultant has clearly shown that I am agreeing to take care of this patient. So, so um, you know, the ultimate way to do that is if they come in and see
2: the patient. Right. If, over the phone, they yeah. basically have uh, no opportunity for a physical examination. Right. Um, there's the things that would normally be associated with you agreeing to take over the care versus this well was i just giving general advice or not um i think it's not as clear as uh, we'd like to uh, think it is
3: right so so like what I, what i do when i practice is i know now from that cardiology case that the more specific we get then the more they are involved and in, and so, like with the fracture, you know, you got the teleradiology, I'll, I'll ask the orthopedist to look at the x-ray and give me advice, and then on my chart, I write, he looked at this patient's x-ray and mm-hmm. gave me advice. That clearly, or if I want to follow up and I don't really need to drag him in, I will document, I gave him this patient's phone number and he took it. You know, that's pretty uh, specific and also kind of implying that that doctor agreed to take on this patient.
2: Thank
0: you. Next case.
3: Well, uh, we're going to switch tracks, here. You know, I think the, uh, the last section is uh, involving nurses and when things go bad, when a physician and a nurse are involved, and, and there's a couple legal concepts that come into play here, and one is called vicarious liability, and that, that kind of basically says that, well, the courts, you know, this is true legalese here, the court said if something bad happens, somebody's got to be responsible. Everyone can't just say no one's responsible. And um, it's a fiction, but it basically says uh, someone's got to be responsible. So vicarious liability is this philosophy that the the head person, the company that employs, whoever's in charge, is responsible for their employees. Um, and the the old term is called respondent superior, which means um, you know let let the let the boss answer. Um, the other concept that comes into play came back from England uh, with farmers, and sometimes they wouldn't have enough workers to pick the, the, the vegetable on their farm, and they would go next door and say, can I borrow some of your workers? And then that doctrine is called the borrowed servant doctrine, um, and you know then you are responsible for that servant for what they do while you are borrowing them so so this is how the nurses come in where often the nurses are considered uh, the physician is borrowing them as a servant from the hospital but in some situations the hospital is vicariously liable because uh, they are the boss of the nurse so i'll give a couple cases Um, one was uh, again it's a non-ED case but there's a delivery in the delivery room and things aren't going well and the obstetrician says nurse I want you to push on this woman's chest to help the baby come out and the woman screams you're breaking my ribs and she was right the nurse broke the ribs and um, so the physician got sued and he said wait a minute this is an employee of the hospital it's not my responsibility Uh, but the court said no At this situation, she was a borrowed servant. She was under your control. She directly did what you told her, and then you have to answer for her. Uh, Another case was uh, in the hospital, a guy admits a patient. Um, She gets intubated. Um, She gets better and gets extubated, and then she worsens, and the nurse, instead of calling the primary physician, calls a resident who fails at the intubation, and there's a bad outcome. And so everyone gets sued, but the physician said, the nurse never called me. Um, you know, I'm not responsible for this. And, and the court agreed. The court said the nurse unilaterally acted, although he could have been in charge of her. He could have told her what to do. He was not able to do it in this situation, and so the hospital had to answer for her. So um, these cases all end up coming down to really who has the control at the time of the action. Uh, that's going to end up being who answers for it.
0: By the way, this uh, this question of vicarious liability <clears throat> uh, is fought out all the time. I, uh, I we often get uh, uh, demand letters from the uh, from the hospital that say, uh, "Well, we looked at the case and we don't think we're involved, so we'd like you to assume all charges and costs and uh, go ahead and defend this." Uh, A warning to all my colleagues out there, never do that because you don't know what's going to be discovered at some point in time to find that there is actually active liability as opposed to just a uh, uh, passive liability situation with regard to these cases. I I think that this is uh, the, the hospitals are working as hard as they can these days uh to uh, pass off liability and uh i think in our very next uh our next issue of risk management monthly rick and i are going to be discussing some letters from some of our listeners out there where these situations have come up but um, it, it's not a clear um, it's not a clear situation who's in charge and who did what. So I think these things often have to be fought out. Some of the worst things, by the way, are when a uh, hospital and a physician do not agree on this matter, and then that comes out in court. It can, it can be ugly. It's an absolute bonus point for the, uh, for the plaintiff's case.
3: So what's going to happen in these cases is they're going to get analyzed and they're going to say who is the employer of the person and who had control of them, actual control during the action. And uh, so that's kind of how those cases are going to be evaluated.
2: Uh, Guys, is there a difference between a physician who's an employee of the hospital uh, where the nurses are also employees or whether the physician is an independent contractor? Because under... The terms of being an independent contractor, the uh, nurses don't work for that physician or that physician's group. Uh, They work for the hospital, uh, but the physician is still viewed as the captain of the ship in the department. Uh, Does that have any bearing on this? The thing with an independent
3: contractor in the hospital, the, the courts have said, you know, hospitals, when an independent contractor messes up, will say, well, you know, I'm not vicariously liable for them because um, they're not my employee, they're you know they're their own employee. So like at me, if I'm an employee for the hospital as a physician and I mess up, the hospital is going to get pulled in. Uh, but an independent contractor, the hospital is going to say you're on your own. Uh, again, with the nurses. Um, If there's a situation between the nurse and an independent contractor, the court's going to look and say, who had control at the time of this behavior? Was the nurse a borrowed servant of the independent contractor who said, push on the chest? Then the independent contractor is going to be liable. Um, If the nurse... uh, Really wasn't under the control of the independent contractor. He didn't tell them to do something. Uh, then the liability is going to fall back on the hospital as the employer. I don't. I don't know if that is clear or makes sense. Or,
0: well, I th- there's another concept, though, Greg, that you should comment on in, in fairness, and that is ostensible or apparent agency. And at least two dozen states uh, recognize that concept, which means. The, in the emergency department, the patient has no idea who works for who. It is, it is at least ostensibly, if that physician is sitting at St. Mary's Hospital, to that person coming in the door, they think they're part of St. Mary's Hospital. It's, it, it, they are the ostensible or apparent agent of that institution. And certainly here in Michigan we have uh, we have cases which have been reiterated that a parent or ostensible agency does hold.
3: Yeah, that's a great point. And I'll tell you another little situation that arises where they'll pull the hospital in, even though it's an independent contractor, if, say, they mess up on a cricothyroidotomy, uh, they had no training in it, uh, the hospital credentialed them in it. If they go back and show that the hospital kind of was negligent in their credentialing of this independent contractor, then the hospital can get pulled in, too. Um, yep. So I've seen that several times.
0: Yeah, just understand, everybody's, everybody understands what the point is here, and that's to involve the maximum number of insurance policies uh, to help resolve the case. And uh, each individual attorney's job is to protect his pot of money, and, uh, and sometimes that uh, brings the whole case down, and I've seen that happen multiple times.
3: Yeah, the ho- I mean, and the hospital's the golden egg. I mean, the hospital's going to have more than anyone, so that that's the one everyone tries to get involved.
1: All right, so here's a couple. Of, these are our last two cases, but these are a couple of resident cases. Um, and in general, you know, the courts tend to find that you know, if if you're a, a resident and or you're an attending physician supervising residents, um, you you owe a duty uh, to the patients that are being cared for by your residents. Um, you know you're supervising them, and thus you you have a relationship with uh, the patients your residents are caring for. So here's one that typifies that, um, and this is uh, from Louisiana. Um, a, a lady came into the ER with with a severe sudden onset headache. Um, had a CT scan that a resident uh, radiologist read as negative. Uh, a PA in the ER did an LP, which was also negative, um, and she went home with a diagnosis of attention headache. And the next day. Got quite a bit worse, vomiting, uh, and went to a clinic associated with this hospital, and uh, was found by that doctor to have a visual field deficit. Who this physician then looked at the CT report from the night before, which by then had been overread uh, as having three small infarcts. Uh, so he repeated a CAT scan, which by then was interpreted as a massive cerebral infarct. Uh, the patient got admitted uh, to the inpatient service. Uh, declined over the next four days and died. Uh, she was cared for largely by residents um, who, uh, you know, although they, there was test, uh, testimony that the attending physicians were involved, the cases were presented at morning report, etc. there's no documentation uh, of an attending physician ever seeing this patient in the hospital. Uh, so Sue was brought against uh, those attendings who said, you know, hey, we didn't have any duty to this patient because we didn't directly contribute to her care. Uh, And the court ruled that, well, that's exactly the issue. Um, You know, through your supervisory role, you have a relationship with these patients that are cared for by your residents. That's in the hospital bylaws. um, And that's, you know, part of your contract. And so they they were held liable. Uh, And so that seems to be the majority of of cases in this regard. Uh, But here's one that's an exception. Um, A mom brings her four-year-old daughter into uh, the ED. Um, She's dehydrated. Uh, The term lethargic is used in the court documents. And she's got some lesions in her mouth. The the way that this particular hospital was staffed in terms of attending coverage, um, the attending was in the ER from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. After that, he or she left but was available for the residents to call uh, with any cases. Uh, And So this this was at night. This was after the attending had gone home. This girl is seen by the intern uh, who then presents the case to the senior resident who also sees her. Uh, No contact was made with the attending. Um, at all, she was not aware that uh, they were there, um, and the kid went home and saw her her pediatrician the next day it was by then quite a bit worse. those lesions turned out to be uh, chicken pox and um, she basically ended up with disseminated varicella, uh, had uh, pneumonitis encephalitis, and died um, and Sue was brought against this uh, this e d attending who said you know i i wasn 't contacted I, you know no I was not aware of the the presence of this patient, um, and thus, you know, I had no relationship with her. And the courts actually found uh, that she wasn't liable in this case uh, because of that. Uh, she, you know, she, there was not even a minimum uh, m- a minimum affirmative action. She had no way of knowing that this patient was under her care, and so they, they did not find her um, liable in this case. Wait a minute. This has got to be a very old case. This because- was... Yeah, 2000 was the, 2001 was the, uh, the ruling, but the, the contact was in the early 90s. It had yeah. to have been, yeah. because I was,
0: I was president of the college when I had to go to that meeting in Washington. Um, it, it, let me tell you, one of the worst days of my life, I went to the meeting in Washington where they had gotten the University of Pennsylvania for non-supervision. They considered it fraud. All 24 specialties got called in, and then I had to go down to SAEM and tell all the academics that they were going to have to see every damn case. And if they billed for it, they'd be in violation of the federal law, and they would have committed a crime. Uh, Believe me, uh, I was hated by everyone, Uh, but this time for a pretty good reason. Uh, I'd given them information they never wanted to hear. Because it was happening all the time. When Rick Bucata was at USC as a as a uh, child doctor, um Rick, did you have an attending see every case? A what? A what? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, by the way, US you, you realize USC has cut a deal of some kind with the feds where um I don't know whether they give them a lump sum of money but I don't think uh, that their attendings are required to uh, examine and write a note on every case. Are they? No,
2: they're not. And uh, it is an atypical uh, relationship because uh, when you talk to the guys at UCLA, they do need to see uh, every case. And um, I honestly think that these doctors are in training. And um, if you, as the faculty, elect not to see the case, um, I think that it's still your responsibility if something goes wrong and you said, said nah, I think that the resident can deal with this, I don't need to see them or you don't even know about the case. I still think that there is some uh, obligation here. This this obviously was a real case because the, the faculty went home at five o'clock. But um, I think it's gotten much stricter now and that the faculty are seeing. You know all the cases. I don't know what you guys do up in Madigan. Do you see all the cases? Uh, oh, we, there's, this, we, there's we, silence. Wait, Aaron, listen, Our, our,
3: our bosses yeah. might be listening to this. So think about what the answer
1: is. Uh, we certainly have the uh, the option to. Um, you know we you know we're there. There's generally two two attendings. Um, you know we're we're aware of every case, um, and we're in the department 24 hours a day. Um, so, you know, in contrast to this case, but, you know, yeah, certainly yeah, but
0: you, you guys are the feds uh, for <laughs> yeah. the rest of us. So, it so actually me. is required. It, it's this. And if you bill under Part B and they use a physician's provider number and you didn't supply the service, you're guilty of fraud. I'll give you a quick case. Uh, this took place in the great state of Texas. And it had to do with a uh, attending, particularly arrogant, who said during the death, well, I must not have seen the case because I wouldn't have missed it. The guy just said to him, is that your name at the bottom? Yes or no. Here's the billing slip. It, It was billed out with your provider number. Doctor, if you're claiming you didn't see the case and you billed for it, I'd like to let you know right now you're guilty of fraud. And I'm calling the inspector general and you're going to prison. Um, in fact, well, it was more complex than that because he said, "I will call the inspector uh, unless you sign over the two million dollar insurance policy right now." Uh, which, by the way, is coercion. But the but if you think for one minute that they're not going to go after you in in the civilian world for for um, for for billing when you didn't see the case, you're smoking dope. I've got those cases and you lose.
3: Yeah, I, I, I would, I would agree. And, and second that motion, I, I practice both outside and in the military system and, and, and also in the legal school experience. I mean, it's, it's the fraud that's going to get you if you start signing things and then later try to say, Oh, it, it wasn't me. Um, you, you're going to get it maybe two ways. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going way out of my knowledge here, but, um, in the military, you know, we don't send out bills, and I'm not sure that Medicare and Medicaid get billed. Um, and so, there, you know, we don't get the specific requirements the mandates that say you need to see every patient. When I was in the, the private world, it was very clear that you better see every patient uh, because we're going to be billing under you, and then you're going to be liable for fraud. I, I hear a lot of my colleagues sometimes say, well… The resident didn't tell me that or I never heard about this. And and I think it's important to know that um, that's not going to be a good excuse in court. They're going to say that's that's the exact reason you're there and you failed at your duty and you're liable.
0: You know, the public believes that, too. They pay you. You get money to oversee residents and And the reason that they pay you money, it's the same standard of care is by virtue of supervision. You know sometimes we do things as a practice as medicine that I understand why the public gets mad at us and and i I think if I'm going to get charged like a big time doctor saw me, that a big time doctor ought to see me and i I don't think that's I don't think that's wrong
2: well this is um extrapolated to the situation where many, many, many of our colleagues are expected to sign a stack of charts at the end of their shift of people who uh, were seen by PAs. Different and issue, Rick. Different issue. I, I, I acknowledge that. I acknowledge that. And they're not, you're not necessarily billing out at the, at the physician rate and all those rules that apply there. But I do uh, believe that many, many of our uh, colleagues feel very uncomfortable Signing those charts because they don't know what their name means at the bottom of that piece of paper when they never saw the uh patient uh at all, and uh, there's this reluctance to do it, and you wonder, well what does that signature mean uh, um, what level of supervision, if any occurred there um, we've We've talked about this before, but i don't think we've really ever come up with a a um a good rationale to make people feel comfortable about signing those charts. Let me just tell you right now, if they have any questions
0: about this, we'll settle it. What, what, what happens to you? You're screwed. You are still going to be called in. You're still going to give a dep. It depends on how the insurance arrangement is set up. But I'll tell you, I know that no one wants to talk about it down at ASAP or AEM right. or any of these other places. They don't. There's a dirty little secret here. It's a dirty little secret that we haven't defined what supervision is, who needs it, what kinds of cases need it. The other thing is the sicker the patient, the the less you need a doctor. If they come in with big ST segment changes and diaphoretic, the PAs can handle that just fine. I think a tougher case is when grandma says, you know, she's 85 and says, I don't feel good. That's a harder case, Rick.
2: No argument from me. Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay, Rick, it's wine of the month time, and uh, we're going to do a one throwback segment. Uh, While I was in Washington at uh, Madigan, I was given a bottle of Kung Fu Girl, which is a Washington state wine. Uh, I had actually mentioned that in a previous edition of Risk Management Monthly and uh, opened it the other night, and it's terrific. It's got a lot of fruit. And uh, and just don't be afraid of the fact that it's got a screw top. When uh, people like uh, Greg Moore and and uh, Rick and I were young, screw top always meant bad news. It meant it was cheap and it and and you know you know Annie greensprings sort of stuff. Uh, that's not true anymore. Some of the great wines have screw tops, and uh, that's great. The one I'm passing on today is again. We sometimes stick up our nose at, at, at major names saying, "Oh well, that's too plebeian." Um, the other night, we were doing a bottle of Kendall Jackson, 2011, a Chardonnay avant, AVANT. It's California. It's terrific. You can buy it at somewhere between 12 and 15 bucks a bottle. And you know what? Um, it, it's hard to beat a wine like that. You're having dinner. This is good stuff. There's no reason when you're just serving it with food uh, that that you're going to be spending 80 and a hundred bucks a bottle, 15 bucks a bottle. It's great. Go get some, go drink some. Okay, Rick, there you go.
2: Okay guys. Well, that's the uh, July issue of a risk management monthly. I'd like to thank our guests, uh, Aaron Matlock and uh, Greg Moore for uh, bringing these cases to our attention and giving us some uh, pertinent discussion on how to be careful when working with uh, your colleagues. Uh, Guys, we'll talk with you next month. Bye for now. Bye-bye.